Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we conclude our summer series on the Bible and economic justice with a text from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Not such an obvious text for economic justice, but a really important and challenging one. How do we hold together Mary's extravagance toward Jesus with our moral and practical obligation to use our resources to care for the poor? This text invites us to explore the human need to express a sense of awe and transcendence and to ask if we humans could stop amassing resources to ourselves. Could we create this beautiful reality of abundance instead of scarcity, where we could give to God and give to each other? Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. It is our last episode of our special summer season on economic justice in the Bible. It is. And the, yeah, and the final episode of season three of The Bible Worm. Also that. Can you believe we've been Bible worming for three years? No. Two of them in a global pandemic? Two (laughs) two and a half of them? Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a minute. It has been. Yeah. It goes by quickly. You, you gave us a good, interesting, challenging text for this topic today. Yeah, I'm curious to see where this goes. We're in John chapter 12, which kind of leans a little bit against everything <laughs> we've been saying, at least on the face of it. Yeah. And so I, I thought it's nice, instead of just having texts that all kind of confirm what you've been saying, to like offer a little bit of what at least appears to be a counterpoint, and then let's kind of see if we can work out some nuance or something. Yeah, yeah. Like we we were just sort of really getting anchored in that the worldview of the the past five texts, and now it's like, are you going to throw a little wrench in things for us? But that's that's good. Yeah, I think so. That, um, it's like when you're working out, like, and you get used to doing something, and then they're like, okay, now we're going to destabilize your core and see if you can still do it. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, destabilizing the core. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Gosh, Bobby, we just read John. Do we need to say anything about John, generally speaking, or do you think we can hop in? I think it's I think it's worth saying a couple of things. Yeah. We did just talk about John and so if you need to know more about John, let me just go back listen from January forward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you haven't done it already. But two things I think that are important about the placement of this current story. One is this the story that just happened previously in John chapter 11 is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so the the very previous thing that has happened is that Mary and Martha have called Jesus and they said, our brother Lazarus is ill. Jesus has delayed and finally arrived. And everybody was sad because he'd been dead and had, you know, he's been dead so long that he stinks. Mm -hmm. And Jesus then raises him from the dead and he walks out of the tomb. And so this story that we're about to read is going to take place in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so like those two stories are very closely related to each other. The other thing to say is that the very next chapter is the beginning of the farewell discourse in which Jesus has his last supper with his disciples, a different supper than the one we're about to talk about. It's a couple days later. And in John chapter 13 is the the story in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and says, love one another as I have loved you. This story that we're going to read today sort of is right in the middle of those two things. And I, I think they give important context, as I imagine we will talk about as we go, mm. for yeah. what's happening here. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Okay, well then I'm just going to I'm going to pick up. We are reading John chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 and I am reading from the NRSV. 6 days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. 
Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Mm, that, um, that detail at the end there that the house was filled with perfume is so, I don't know, it just like intoxicating in some way. Like it just, I don't know, it, it just, it like takes me away somewhere like to imagine they have, they have really transformed the nature of the space that they are in yeah. by, uh, through this act. Yeah. I love that way of saying it. And, you know, like when you think about smells, like you don't, at least I'm a very word oriented person. And so I like thinking about the sensory aspects of the text is probably not my first yeah. go-to. But we've just, in the previous chapter, and, and I even was talking about it in the introduction, we had a reference to smell in the previous chapter, which was the smell of death that yes. surrounded Lazarus in the tomb and sort of filled the tomb. And there was this sense of, like, why would you even try to, like, go in there with all that smell and bring him out? And now here we have the sort of the opposite yeah. smell. The room is filled, overwhelmingly so, with this beautiful fragrance. And I can't help but read those two together, that, you know, their lives, their lives were sort of enshrouded with the smell of death, and now they are filling their home with the beautiful smell of rich perfume. It's a really yeah. powerful image. I love that. And I, you know, I don't I don't want to spend too long on this detail, but I I mean, at least for me in some of the the hardest moments in my life, it's it is something like bringing flowers into the house. Yeah. Like you you can't actually solve the problem, you know, they can't, I don't, I don't know what exactly Mary understands this point about what's at this point about what's going to happen to Jesus, yeah. but, but the reader knows, yeah, you know, and well, presumably the reader knows we know cause we've already read to the end. And so to have that, that true thing, like that is real and true. And also we can have this just comfort and beauty around us in the face of that true and hard thing is, I think, really powerful. Yeah, I love that, Amy. With the way you were talking about that just reminds me of the practice of sending flowers to a funeral or to a home when someone has died. Mm. And yeah, like the the practice is sort of a, you know, an odd practice on the face of it. But I, but that sort of reminder that there is life in the midst of death and there is beauty in the midst of tragedy. Yeah. And in this case, we're between two deaths and two resurrections, actually. Which yeah. makes that like this exact moment is a there's a celebration that Lazarus who was dead has been restored, and also a foreboding that Jesus who is alive will soon be dead. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. Do you read that the you know John likes to give timestamps if I yeah. recall correctly, and he gives us a timestamp at the beginning of this. Do you read particular meaning or or how does that affect? your reading of the rest of the text. It's six days before the Passover. You know, Amy, all that I really have done with that is to say there's a sense in this gospel that you kind of know that Passover is going to be yeah. the crucial moment for Jesus. And you know that Jerusalem is going to be the crucial place for Jesus. And here we are in Bethany, which we've been told earlier is two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's six mm -hmm. days before Passover. Yeah. So the way that I, you know, the most sense that I can make of it is really just like, we're here both spatially and temporally. Like we're in the crucial, this is the beginning of the crucial moments of the end. Yeah. Do you do anything more or other with it than that? I, I love the way that you said that. And I, I don't think I have a whole lot to add to it. I do see it as a sort of recognition that, that the end is nigh. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it actually had me thinking about some of the conversations that we've had over the years about I mean, the book of Kohelet, but also just that understanding of death in general and, and some how, how easy it is to pretend we are not mortal or to forget that we're yeah. mortal. And I know Jesus is sort of a separate category here, but, but we're not. We're human. And, you know, so in, in, in the minds of the reader at this point, death is, is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And how when you fully accept, like when you know that this is imminent and this is going to happen, it shifts your priorities in a way that can be really helpful. Mm. It, it shifts you towards 
you know, not not trying to have a legacy and not trying to solve all the problems and not trying to like imagine that that you're the one who's going to make a difference, but to enjoy the the bounty that is around you, to enjoy your talents, to enjoy your body, enjoy yeah. the fact that you can smell this perfume or feel yeah. the oil. And so I just feel this, I feel like this shifting here in this text of like, mm. you know, the sense of what makes a good day is different when you know you're about to die versus when you think you have endless time to be in the world and accomplish things, you know? Yeah. I love that, Amy. You know, we've been talking about the sort of the perfume and the smell of the perfume and how it fits into this imagery of life and death, which I think is really important. The specifics in this text is not, though, just, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's some flowers in the house or they opened a bottle of perfume and it smelled nice. So the smell is there. But the action is Mary anointing, I guess is maybe the word, Jesus's feet with nard and wiping it with her hair, which adds a whole other dimension of what the significance is here. Yes. How do you start to think about her action towards Jesus specifically? You know, the one parallel that came to my mind as I was reading from the from the Jewish tradition is well, I guess what I would call hidor mitzvah, which is the beautification of a mitzvah, is sort of going a little above and beyond mm. what is required as a, as a way to add add beauty and glory to you know to sh- to show our joy and care in yeah. in living in the way that we live, and there is certainly is is the like personal care you know like Jesus is here like in a body and she is like really caring for his body in a really sensory kind of way. Yeah. But because he is in this story a religious symbol also, I feel like the care that is extended to him here is really a profound, I would imagine, like religious or spiritual statement expression for Mary herself. Yeah. How do you how do you think about this act? Uh- I agree with everything that you just said. And, you know, the there is a an affection and a depth of relationship mm-hmm. here that Mary is expressing and and very, very much so an honoring. Like, you know, Nard is a quite an expensive perfume. It comes from India. It has to be transported all the way to Israel. And there's a lot of cost. We're gonna learn in, in a in a minute that it costs a year's wages. 300 denarii. And so, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what that exactly translates to, but if you imagine whatever you make and it's like, yeah. it's that much money that she has spent, like she has poured out in a sense, like significant savings to yes. do this gesture for him. And so this expression of honoring, um, affection, relationship, both the human Jesus, and I think you're exactly right, also recognition. She she has previously referred to him as her Lord, and like she gets what's going on, I think. Or at least, you, we were talking last episode about like, you know there's something beyond exactly what you know, and like you can't yeah. say it. Yeah. Like maybe she's there with Jesus, like she knows yeah. that it's something out there. She can't quite say it, and she's trying to express that and honor that. And she doesn't have the words for it, but she's got the action to do it. Yeah. When I read the word nard, it also reminds me of the Song of Songs. This is the, the other mm. place that I can sort of think of. Mm, and, I love that. Pull that out a little bit for us. Well, I mean, I'm just like that story is about the sort of deep, passionate, you know, sensual relationship between two human beings. Not at all to suggest here that there's a sexual component to the Mary-Jesus relationship, but there is a sensual component to it. And this sort of like deep enthrallment, this deep love for another. And this is one way of expressing that. Would you unfold that more or differently? Oh, I I love that. And I just would, uh, my mind's like going in all these different directions now. And and I would add to what you said, you know, of course, as, as you know, the Song of Songs is also read as a 
metaphor for the relationship between, you know, God and Israel or Jesus and the church. And I will tell you, up until pretty recently, I— I just thought that was kind of prudish. Like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we're not comfortable with sensuality in the biblical text, and so we're going to make this a nice buttoned-up metaphor. And I'm sure that there was some, you know, some aspect of that in in people loving this metaphorical approach so much. But I also think, you know, we talked last time about that, that as you were saying before, like the beyond, like knowing there's something beyond, and this sense of like real longing for something that that you know is there and that enlivens you and invigorates you. And you have these moments of intense interaction with it. And then you have moments where you can't find it. And that, I mean, again, the older I get, that really is is precisely my mm-hmm. relationship with with the divine or my sense of godliness in the world. And that the intensity of the longing I think actually works both on that on the human level and also on that metaphorical level. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that connection to the allegorical reading of the Song of Songs. Mm, I think that's a really beautiful yeah. connection. Yeah. You know, my own sort of take on Song of Songs, slightly off topic, is that we ought to read it as a book of sensual love poetry. And we ought to read it as an allegory of the relationship between God and humans. Yeah. We don't have to pick one of those two. Yeah. But there is something about the interplay of those two that's really, really rich. And I think that can apply in this text in, the, in a similar way. The other dynamic that's here that's so interesting to me is just that this comes right after Jesus has raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. And so the last time we saw this family together, they were in mourning and everybody was crying. And there was this sense of, the end yeah. is here. Our brother's dead. Yeah. You know. And so I'm just trying to think the motivations of Mary. Like, I think all of the things that we have said are exactly right. And also that there's just a sense of gratitude. Like, yes. Jesus did this thing for her family. She has no way of repaying. Like, how on earth do you repay? Right. I raised your brother from the dead. <laughs> right. Right. And so what she's got is, well, here's what I know I can do. I've got... Yeah money. I can buy this perfume. I can express to you how important you are to me. I don't think gratitude is the only thing that's going on here, but I think it's an important thing that's going on here. And it's gratitude within this deep relationship that they have clearly had previous even to the raising of Lazarus story. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I think that adds to the element of sort of, I don't know, like almost adds some like urgency, like urgency to the longing that, you know, like it, it just, it just heaps up emotion upon emotion that is being really poured out in an act that is like it pretty impractical as oh, yeah. Judas is about to point out. Like yeah. this is not, not a practical decision, but it's so, you know, humans are humans are not always practical. Yeah. And I think that it really covers a whole other realm of of human experience and human religious expression. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's special episode. Is there anything else you want to say before we move on to see what Judas thinks of this? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think we've covered it pretty well. We might need to gesture back at some point, but I think we're ready to continue on. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? I'm actually going to pause there before we hear the aside from the biblical author. Because, you know, the aside, as you know, is going to sort of, 
you know, tell us, well, we shouldn't take this guy seriously because he's yeah, a jerk. Yeah, going to give you an out. Fine. Yeah. Fine. He's a jerk. Whatever. But I want to know now, now, here's really where, like, the rubber hits the road with uh, these texts we were, we've been steeped in for the last month and change. Is this a valid argument? Yeah. Like, is this what, is this a valid argument? Is this what the prophet's? would have said, you know, the prophets who said, don't bring me all your sacrifices or don't, you know, yeah. don't heap up these empty words of prayer. Yeah. Is what she's doing essentially that? Yeah, I mean, if if you did not know, like we're, we as Christians are trained, you read Judas Iscariot and you're like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so even without the aside, you're like, nope, nope, not listening to <laughs> Listen to you, Judas. We know. We know you. <laughs> we know you. But if you just imagined for a minute that somebody else's name was there, or it just said one of his disciples said, and you didn't know how this story ends, I think you're exactly right. Like, I think there is a big part of me that's like, yeah, that's exactly right. The parallel that I can come up with, this is a little bit of a, a meme, I suppose we would say, but is that churches that have to decide whether they're going to put $2 million to mm-hmm. install a new pipe organ, mm-hmm. or they're going to sell their building and turn it into low income housing. Yeah. And you can kind of use, use this as what Judas is saying is maybe the $2 million for the pipe organ is, has no value in a world where there are people who are suffering. So yeah. absolutely you should get rid of the pipe organ at least, maybe sell your building, mm-hmm. give it to the poor. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the right thing to do. I'm, I have made that argument myself. I probably made that argument on this podcast. I might've made that argument last week. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you take it out of, if you take it out of the mouth of Judas yeah, and it's, you know, it's, I would exorbitant, you know, you can just hear him like this was a year's wages just think what you could do with a year's wages yeah. when there's poor people in your community who don't have enough to eat today. Think how many meals you could feed or think how many rents you could pay or, you know. Yeah. I mean, my first read of him is Judas, notwithstanding, I think you might be right. Yeah. What does that read like to you? I mean, yes, I feel I feel all of those things. And I also have made those arguments, you know, probably on the podcast and certainly in the real world. And I also come from a tradition that has this crazy, gorgeous, elaborate tabernacle and temple. And, you know, like in the, in the text, in the tradition and that are You know, so I guess I would say it's like it's a familiar argument to me because every time we read those texts, there is some conversation about why would you do that? Yeah. You know, and and with the tabernacle, it's not so much why would you do that? You could give the money to the poor because it's just sort of a different situation when they're in the desert. There, it's why would you do that? You're making your lives a lot harder. Yeah. By by building this thing and then you have to take it down and move it. Like why, why, why would you do that? And then, you know, later with the temple and there are all kinds of economic, real economic problems that surround the building of the temple. And I don't know if I can make a case that it's, that, that God needs that, or if I would make a case that God needs that. But I do know that sense of the transformation within me when I am in spaces that inspire awe. Yeah. And so I guess I'm just, I'm feeling that tension between like the, the practical and moral imperative to use our resources to take care of each other's most basic and essential needs. And then also to wonder where where the sense of awe and wonder fits into that world and if it needs to fit in a way that has no economic implications or if it's sort of, I mean, in some ways I feel like this is, you know, the other texts we've read have said 
I I think two things. One is like don't amass wealth. Yeah. And take care of the people in your community who who need, you know, like share the wealth, right? Yeah. And so she's not amassing wealth. Like she is giving it away. Yeah. Like the text has yeah. said give it away, give it away, give it away, and she is giving it away. But she's giving it away differently. Yeah. I don't think I really answered the question other than to say that this is this is a, a live tension, certainly, in the Hebrew Bible and apparently also yeah. in the New Testament right here. Yeah. No, you didn't answer the question, but, you know, I, don't, I often, and you're the same way, I think, don't actually like questions to be answered. Yeah. I like them to be complexified yeah. in ways that, like, take something that seems simple on the surface and says, there's a, actually, there's a lot going on here that is really down in the nitty gritty of what it means to be a person of faith. And I think absolutely you've done that. You know, one of one of the ways that I'm hearing what you're saying is there is a sense of, you know, generosity toward the poor, mm-hmm. selfishness for one's own ends, mm-hmm. which we have been talking about a lot. Mm-hmm. And then there is a third category, which we have not really been investigating at all, which is generosity toward God. Yeah. And so... Generosity toward God and generosity toward the poor have a different relationship to each other than generosity toward the poor or selfishness for my own ends. Yes. And so it's clear enough like what that should be about. I I appreciate your sort of drawing that out, but it's less clear. And this is what I think you're saying in the Hebrew scripture. And then here, here it is. Generosity toward the poor, generosity toward God. That's a different conversation. And we haven't really had it. We've had it a little bit. I mean, it's very clearly there in a book like Amos, which is, I hate, I despise your festivals. Like, let justice roll down like waters. Like, you know, there it is. But I think it's more, like, I think Amos is actually more complicated than just that statement there, too. So I think what we sort of have wandered our way into, which I think is the right place, is a conversation about generosity toward God and generosity toward the poor and how do those relate to each other. Now, then if you pull Judas back in, then I think there's a question that we don't know really about Judas. One way is to say Judas is making the case here that generosity toward the poor supersedes generosity toward God. Mm-hmm. And I think, we, I think that's a, a valid argument that we should really consider. Mm-hmm. The other possibility is that Judas would maybe concede that generosity toward God is good, generosity toward the poor is good, but he's a, he's a non-believer. He does not have a relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. His understanding of Jesus is not stretching out beyond the beyond. Mm-hmm. He's just, he has left the fold, which we know is true about Judas. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get it reiterated several more times. In which case he's saying, what you've done here is stupid because you're just pouring out valuable perfume on this guy who is nobody. Yeah. But, which I think, you know, I think you can read Judas. I probably read Judas the second of those ways that he doesn't get who Jesus is, and so it's a no-brainer for him. But I think it's interesting to think about that being mouthed by a disciple who does understand who Jesus is, which puts a square in the middle of that conversation about generosity toward God, yeah. which I think is a much harder thing to, to grapple with. Yeah. You know, and I think I would have to go back and look at some of the details of the prophets, but I think for the most part, as we've as we've explored those, they haven't been saying you shouldn't ever sacrifice or you shouldn't have ritual or have, like, that's not the problem. The problem is yeah. that you're living like a bunch of horrible, wild, you know, the wild west of like economic injustices. Yeah. And then you have the audacity to right. show up as though we could connect through this, you know, generosity that you're offering. Like the foundation has to has to be what you're doing in your daily life towards each other. And then this sense of like intimacy and connection between us that could be through sacrifice or other kinds of offerings is available to you. And you're Yeah. You're doing the big showy thing without Yeah. without the other. I think that's exactly right, Amy. Yeah. Generosity toward God without generosity toward the poor is is completely is to- yeah is atrocious, completely atrocious. To God. right it has yeah. to be built on that on that other foundation 
but a foundation of justice that leads to generosity toward God is in some sense maybe the ideal, in fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about, again, thinking about the, the Jewish traditions that, that surround Shabbat and how we try to elevate the day with special stuff so that it, yeah. so that it feels special. You do get flowers in the house and you, maybe you have meat. If that's a luxury for your family, you'll, you know, decide that this is the day of the week. You sort of heap up yeah. all your luxuries on that day. And that means you're going to have to scrimp a little more over the course of the week to make it work. And you also yeah. give money to tzedakah, but there's no expectation that you scrimp all week and then give it all away and don't don't invest at all in like creating a real loving connection to this religious time and place and in this case person. Yeah. I love that. It's reminding me, I'm not sure quite exactly why, but I I came, I'm coming back to the manna story, which we talked about last Mm. week with give us this day our daily bread. And you know, God does not simply just give bread in the wilderness, but God also gives quail because even in the wilderness experience, when people are struggling day to day, God still says, you know, like you could get by just on bread, but there's a generosity on God's part to say, but here's meat that you can also have. Like they're kind of living, you know, living large might not be exactly right, but when you're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and you're eating meat every day, like that's not so bad. Yeah. And so like to say God has been generous toward Israel, toward us. So why not, you know, generosity can go the other way as well. Yeah. All right, shall we? And yet, I still think Judas has the point. <laughs> I still think, like, man, like, maybe you could have used, like, two weeks worth of wages, you know, and then, or, like, six months worth of wages, like, split the difference. And, like, I mean, I think that's really real. Like, I think this is, yeah. this is the kind of tension that, the, I mean, at least my tradition, I think, doesn't settle for us. It just, it just sort of leaves it there. And I think you're right. We have to. There is a point at which, you know, I yes, I have an appreciation for like awe-inspiring spaces. And there are places I walk into that just seem so ostentatious in the face yeah. of the realities of the world outside that it it feels it feels wrong. And I don't have a system for thinking about that. It's yeah. really, it feels very do you have any kind of system for thinking? Is it like just a gut level, this feels appropriate and this doesn't? Yeah, I don't really, I mean, that's such a good question, Amy. And as you were talking about that, like I'm thinking about some sort of televangelists in their private jets where they fly all around, or you see pictures of their houses that are like these multi, 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 multi multi-million dollar uh, houses. And, you know, like normally, most often, there are people that sort of benefit from the generosity that we express toward God, and often in ways that are manipulatable. And... So like in the real world of like practical outcomes, then it, then it's hard to know. Or in the case, like coming back to the case of the organ, yeah, you know, so now we have beautiful music on Sundays. Like that feels better to me than a private jet for the pastor. Yeah. Yes. Although, you yes. know, like, I mean, I wouldn't mind having a Bible worm jet and we could just fly around <laughs> do Bible worm from the sky or uh, something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there, I do have a gut level of it. Like, that's right, that's wrong. But, man, when you start trusting gut level things, then you're like, well, the thing that I want to do on the gut level feels pretty good to me, but the thing I don't want to do feels pretty bad. Yeah. So. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. And so, like, hearing hearing what Judas has said to her, I'm like, is like is this just the grand Jewish tradition of tochacha, of, like, rebuke, that when you think yeah. someone has – stepped out of the Jewish way, you're supposed to tell them. You're supposed yeah. to tell them. Yeah. John does not think that's what's going no, on. No, <laughs> John does not. No. So should we, let's just look at this little aside here in verse six and yeah. see how that changes things for us. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Okay, so yeah, that definitely undermines Judas's <laughs> yeah. point above. Although I do think there's some merit to like considering the point aside from the person who Absolutely. said it. Yeah. Okay, I have a simple-minded question for you. 
I understand yeah. the statement he doesn't care about the poor. Fine. But why would you say because he because he was a thief, he cared? How do you understand the connection between those phrases? That the causal, because he was a thief, that's why he said this? Yeah, I mean, there's a way that I read what's going on there is he wished he could have had that money in his pocket. And so he has said to Mary, you should have given that money to the poor. Oh, because then he could have stolen it. Exactly. So then she's going to give it to him because he's the money guy. And then he's going to launder it through his whatever business he's got on the side. I made that so much more complicated in my (laughs) mind, Bobby. I mean, that's so much more complicated. Yeah, it's pretty, like, sometimes being simple-minded like me is a a useful gift. No, that, well, I mean, that kind of answers all that. I don't know if we have anything else to say about that verse. (laughs) To me, what's interesting about this, there's a couple of things there. Like, one is, honestly, what I think is happening here, in the CEB, this is a a parenthetical, like, it's, Like, John, the gospel writer, has, like, turned to the side and broken the fourth wall, and he's saying to the reader, like, hey. And my cynical reading of that is that John's trying to let us or himself off the hook. He's trying to keep us from having the conversation that we were just having by way of short-circuiting it. And so I really appreciate it. It had not occurred to me until you uh, suggested it that you would read verse 5 without verse 6. But but verse 6 lets you off the hook immediately. Like, oh, I don't need to even need to think about that issue because that guy was a thief anyway. So I really appreciate that. The other thing that I take from this is that it is also possible to pursue your own selfish ends by exploiting people in poverty. And that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people take money for some nonprofit and... Either it doesn't ever go to the people they said it was going to, or the administrative fees are so high that people are getting quite wealthy off of giving money supposedly to the poor. There are all kinds of ways that, you know, like orienting yourself toward the poor is open to corruption. That's what I mean. In every single way that opening yourself toward other aspects is open to corruption. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't simply valorize the poor or giving to the poor or people who want to give to the poor. We've got to be really thoughtful about the nature of people and our own nature. Like, why are we giving? Like, if we give to the poor so that we can, I don't know, run for elected office and say, like, look how much money I gave to the poor last year. So, you know, like, we got to always check the motivations. And so we we took Judas's word for it in verse five. Like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good point. Mm -hmm. And it's not a bad point. And then you dig under it and you're like, oh, actually his motivation was really terrible. And so you talk about scripture being a mirror a lot, which I really like. And so, you know, then this becomes a mirror about like, okay, just because this person is making what seems to be a completely reasonable argument, we need to dig under and look at what their motivations might be. Yeah. Yeah. That's so distressing, but it's true. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is true. And I will say, you know, I, since I missed the sort of now now obvious to me point that he he wanted to steal these 300 denarii specifically yeah. like he wanted that put in his purse yeah i do think that we can say or wonder more broadly if someone is 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 a thief or is is incapable of this kind of the kind of generosity that the biblical tradition demands I can see how it would make them very uncomfortable to see someone else being generous and look for ways to undermine what they're doing. Ah, yeah. You know, that, no, Mary didn't give this money to the poor, but she didn't keep it either. Yeah. And so for for Judas, who is not a generous person, to say, like, well, you gave it away in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. I think also also rings true, even if he didn't have his own little purse there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting idea that Mary did what she thought was the right thing to do. Yeah. And she has so much reason to be grateful to, to and generous to Jesus in all the ways that we just described. And so the idea that, you know, it's, it's not Judas's place to judge the way in which she chooses to be generous to Jesus 
I think that's an interesting idea. And we're going to see what Jesus says about it here in a minute. I, yeah. I have often wondered if Jesus would say something different if the question had been asked before the action. If Mary had said, mm. hey, Jesus, I'd you like to do, do this, this thing for you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what Jesus would say. Like, we can't yeah. know that. But like, once the action is done, then all that can possibly, if, if Mary's motivation was true and she wasn't trying to draw attention to herself or elevate herself in some way, she was just genuinely giving this gift to Jesus. Once it's been given, the only good that can come out of correcting the behavior is to shame her for something that she meant with all mm. her heart. And such a good my Jesus wouldn't do that. Yeah. Now I don't know what Je- I don't know what that Jesus would have said if she had said like this is what I want to do for you. Would he have said yeah this is exactly the right thing or would he have said something else? I don't know. Yeah. But at this point in the story, that's a really good point. You can't correct her. Yeah, you can't undo it. So you're right. The only thing that could come out of this would be shame for a really well well intentioned mm-hmm. loving act. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we see what Jesus says about this? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so picking up in verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Does it does it matter or how does it matter to you that she bought it for the burial? Yeah, that's such an interesting detail in this story. Because, you know, when we read that story of Jesus' actual burial— yeah. Back whenever that was, a couple of months ago, he was very richly anointed at his burial by Nicodemus and was it Joseph? And so there we saw that and we talked about that, like honoring someone and giving Jesus the honor that was due him. And so it seems like Mary had originally bought this perfume thinking that that's what she was going to do with it. Yeah. But then she decides in this moment, like, no, I want to do this now. Yeah. And what it reminds me of, and Jesus's response in a little, in some sort of way, is like when someone who's close to us dies and then we have that list of things that we wish we had said to them, we wish we had done for them, or like, I wish that that person could hear the eulogies that people give at their funeral. Yeah. Like, why didn't we say this to them while they were living? That's the way this strikes me, is Mary Mm -hmm. just had a moment of realization, like, I want to honor Jesus, but... Why would I honor him after he's already died? Right. I I'm gonna use I'm gonna do the same thing I was gonna do, but I'm gonna do it while he was while he's alive, so yeah. that he knows and, and and appreciates and realizes how much I care about him. Like I think that's a really really lovely gesture. I think it's a beautiful gesture, and I think, in some ways, like I I wonder how I wonder how Jesus felt to have that done for him. Yeah. You know, like if he felt honored yeah. or, you know, cared for in his body in a way that he really has not been. Yeah. Or if he felt sort of awkward and like, you know, this is, <laughs> uh, that he's, that, that Mary's doing it because it's something that is meaningful to her. But, you know, I, we, we don't have any access to that. And I'm just, I'm so curious Yeah. I love that way of thinking about it, Amy. And you're right. His body has not been well cared for in his life. In the week ahead, in this narrative time, his body is going to be brutalized and and executed. Yeah. And so to have that sort of tenderness of experiencing, you know, Jesus is God incarnate. And it it would be a shame to have the experience of living in a human body that only ever experiences pain and suffering. Yes. And so here is a moment where he gets to experience what it's like to be in a body that is cared for and loved and honored. I think that's, I think that's a really beautiful idea. I'm thinking too now, are there compare, I know there are comparisons between Mary's womb and the tabernacle, I think. Are there comparisons Mm. between Jesus and the tabernacle? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we can make a comparison even if <laughs> even if other people haven't. You know, even in, God, in John's gospel, in the prologue, when it says uh, the word became flesh and dwelled among them, that word is actually tabernacled. The mm. word became flesh and tabernacled among them. 
so there is this idea yeah. of Jesus, Jesus' body, Jesus as a tabernacle or Jesus being in tabernacled. Yeah. <laughs> I don't quite yeah, know which just sort Where of, does that go for you? It just ties it more concretely to some of the ideas that I led off with, that there is, there is, I don't know if tension is the right word, but there are these sort of twin obligations in the Jewish community to care for each other and care for the poor and not accumulate wealth and all of that. And also to create beauty in a in the world in a way that honors God and to, you know, enshrine God in beautiful in beauty yeah. in the ways that we can, not necessarily in the kind of extravagance we see here, but but that that's real too. Like it's not yeah. all just about it's not all about the more practical. That that's real and we can't forget that. But as humans we have we have a need to connect in other ways also. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Amy. And the other image that keeps occurring to me is what's a, what's about to happen in the very next chapter is that Jesus is going to wash the feet of his disciples and say, do this for one another. Love one another as I have loved you. And so this thing that Jesus experiences from Mary then becomes sort of like the, pre, the prelude to him offering a very similar, although yeah. less expensive, mm-hmm. gift to his followers and then the instruction to like do that for each other so that this idea that she had like i need to honor you my friend my lord and i'm going to do it in this way then jesus receives that yeah and we talked about with peter the importance of receiving the foot washing yes peter said i don't want that and jesus said no you've got to accept this from me and so here jesus is saying i i accept this from you but then he doesn't just hold on to it he then offers it back yeah. And then it ripples out from there. And so I, there's something about the honoring that leads to further honoring. Mm, I love that. I love that. No, you're exactly right. This one, Maybe this is where Jesus got the idea. I love to think about it that way. Yeah. Like Mary sort of, yeah, gave this idea to Jesus yeah. that he then incorporated into his own ministry. I, I think that's a really great way to think about it. This line that Jesus says in verse 8. Yeah can be read a little like like hand wavy or like meh. I mean, I don't know quite. Like the poor will always be here. You'll always have the poor among you. You won't have me. Sometimes people will read that verse as exactly that. Like, yeah, poor people. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's always poor people. Like you try to solve poverty, there's still poor people. And yeah. so in a sense, it can be read as reducing the urgency of attending to the poor. Do you read it that way? Or do you have another way of getting to it? I mean, it's, it's a tough verse, I think. It's a tough verse. I think the way that I think about it is almost like, I'm not sure the best way to say this, but it's almost like you will always have the poor with you and that will always be your work. And if you allow it to be the only thing that you devote your energy toward, almost because you're not going to be able to, you know, quote unquote, solve that problem, it, it, it can become overwhelming or draining or there needs to be some like variation in sort of the horizon to which we lift our eyes. Yeah. And this is a particular moment in time that is quite unique. And so I guess my 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 most positive read of it is doing this in this moment will fill you in a way that will enable you to keep doing that work every day. But if you but if you never mm-hmm. if you never raise your eyes to any other things in the world, it will be hard to persevere in that. I really love that. I really love that, Amy. You know, of course, this is a quotation of a text we talked about, I guess, in the first week of this series on Deuteronomy 15, 11, and the CEB, poor persons will never disappear from the earth. And th- But then it goes on, and you have to imagine that Jesus knows Deuteronomy, and so he knows <laughs> how the verse ends, right? That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you. 
the poor who live in your land. And we talked about that. Like, this is not a command that says the poor will always be with you, so you don't need to be generous to them. It's exactly the opposite. The poor will always be among you, so you need to be exceedingly generous to them. And this is actually in that chapter we talked about, which begins with the cancellation of debts in 15.1. Every seventh year, you cancel all debts. And so in some sense, Jesus has done something quite radical here in this verse that seems like a little bit like dismissive. He, he said, like, charity's great. Giving to the poor is great. But what you really need to do is go back and read Deuteronomy 15.11, which says mm. you need to restructure the entire yeah. debt economy yeah. so that everybody has enough. If you read it that way, I think what Jesus is saying is, look, everybody is still living in the scarcity mindset. Mm. And what you, what you what Judas has said is, if you take Judas on his on his best day instead yeah. of his worst yeah. day, the reasonable case that he has made that we should give money to the poor instead of giving it for the glory of God is still functioning in a scarcity mindset in which if you give money to the one thing, there's not money yeah. to, for the other thing. Yeah. And so you can take that scarcity mindset and use it to hoard, mm-hmm. and you can take that scarcity mindset and use it to give everything to the poor. And those are both scarcity mindset. Deuteronomy 15 is trying to say, no, no, God's generosity is abundant and excessive. And if you would just be generous and not gather to yourself, there is enough so that you can give to the poor and also Mm -hmm. that you can glorify God, which does, I think, exactly what you're saying, which reminds you of the relationship, reminds you of the gifts that you've been given Mm-hmm. By God, what God has done for you, it inspires you in a different way to really want to go out and, and make the world function in the vision yes. of the kingdom of heaven. Mm. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I love that. I love how that just circled right back, that it plugs you back into the ultimate sort of motivation, the ultimate power source to to try to bring this this kingdom to be, which will ultimately— do much better to support the needs of of all people than giving this 300 denarii yeah. at this moment. Yeah. I love that. Bobby, I want to—I'm—well, I'm, I'm, well, actually, I, maybe I'm skipping ahead here. I was going to say I want to start asking, like, what does all this mean? Like, what what do we do with, with all this? Yeah. And, you know, this, this episode is kind of funny because it's the— there's this episode, and then it's also the end of the summer series, and then it's also the end of our Bible Worm series. So there's like sort of threefold conclusions that we yeah. could offer. In terms of this text itself, are there conclusions specific to this text that you would want to draw out? I think I think that for me, being who I am, this text is a really productive challenge for me in ways that I think you have articulated particularly well, which is to say that I am the sort of person, like sometimes my reading of the gospel can be pretty harsh. And what I mean by that is it often runs across people who are positioned in the world like me (laughs) to say like, what are you doing? Like Mm -hmm. you need to be more generous. You need to be, you know, looking out for the poor. You need to be not accumulating wealth, which I, which I, I think all of that is true. But this text today, reading with you, is reminding me that the commands in Deuteronomy that are used to summarize the Torah as a whole are love your neighbor as yourself, mm-hmm. but also love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And I tend to merge those two so that loving your neighbor is loving God. Mm-hmm. This text is reversing the pole, which is to say loving God is loving your neighbor. They come together, and what I love about you, what you've said today, is you can't, you can't just love neighbor, love neighbor, love neighbor, without going back to the well of loving God. That is, I don't know how to quite make that touch the ground for myself yet, because it's kind of opening up my mind a little, opening up my heart in a different kind of way, because I think I can be a little dry in worship life, because I can be so focused. <laughs> on the economic side of things. So this invitation to say like we have a there's a generous world. God has given us abundance. Mm-hmm. And it is actually possible 
and indeed maybe desirable to be generous with God and be generous to the poor and not see these things as, as in conflict with each other. The question of then like, well, what do you give to the organ fund or do you donate to Mercy Church? <laughs> like, I don't quite like, I don't know. I don't have it worked out on the level of those specifics yet, but I, I think thinking of them as not exactly necessarily being opposite choices, but two parts of a complex whole might be a more useful thing. I think that's where I, I think that's where I am coming out. I don't know that I've actually come out any place, but I think that's sort of where I'm headed with I this I think text. you came out someplace. I, I love that, the way that you drew that image of sort of coming back to the well as like the, you know, what enables us to continue to do things on the day-to-day that are, that are challenging for us, that it tells us over and over in these texts, like, yeah, without God, you're not going to be able to do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be able to just give up your wealth. You're not. And yet, and that, and yet that's what we're called to do. And, and we're going to need God to do that. So yeah, it yeah. really does um, just kind of circle right back on itself. Yeah. What do you see when you're looking at this text today? Um, I think I have sort of two separate thoughts, but I think one of them is slightly more interesting than the other. So we'll go with that one. <laughs> sort of related, related to what you said, but picking up where you left off, which is that you know, you can you can give generously towards God. You can give generously toward people. Maybe those things aren't intention. And then, how do we sort of know what to what to do? <laughs> how do yeah. we know what's the right thing to do? Yeah. And I think that reading this text, especially after our last one, where we really—I think it was the last one—where we really dug into the idea. Maybe it was the one before that. That. Part of the problem is is not just that we don't give to the poor; it's that we're hoarding things. Yeah. <laughs> and when we hoard things, it harms us. It isolates us. Yeah. And so it's bad for society, but it's also bad for us. Yeah. Because then we don't have any access to to any way to actually experience God's care, because mm. everything feels like we're just caring for ourselves. You know, like there's yeah. there's no way to really experience what we're what we're trying to move towards here if if we're kind of hoarding resources. But what I see in this text is that Mary is is certainly not hoarding resources. She's giving yeah. it away. And then the question of how you give it away, I guess I kind of see that, I mean, first of all, as a tension that there's no obvious answer to, but that this is again where I go back to the image I'm obsessed with of of the body of Christ, or or we can talk about it as sort of like the the many people who make up the Jewish people, which is that you know we we say like e- each of us is needed in the way that we're gonna play this out like earnestly and authentically, and so you do need people who are gonna give to the organ fund. Maybe you don't need quite as big an organ, but you need you need people who like that is where they're drawn and they're going to help create those experiences and the well for other people to tap into. And you need people who will never give to that fund and will only get. And then you need lots of people sort of in between yeah. that. I think if just for me, if I can just if I can get past don't hoard stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be like a real growth point. Yeah. You know, for me, if I could give away more, however I give it away, I think I will be in a better place. Yeah. Yeah. That's bringing me back to the conversation we had about Deuteronomy 15, which this, you know, Jesus's statement here comes from. And you, you remember in that passage, there's the, there will not be any poor among you because the Lord has blessed you. And then at the end, the poor will always be yeah. among you. Yeah. And we talked about that. And like, as being, if you could stop hoarding and be generous. Like if your problem is you don't know in which way to be generous, <laughs> like right. then if everybody is that way, then we can create a world in which in fact there aren't poor people. Yeah. And then the, but the poor will always be among you is a recognition that that's really hard. And so there's always people who are maybe going to fall, right? fall through the cracks again. But I love the way you're thinking about that is if, if we could orient ourselves so that our problem is we don't know which way to be generous instead of that we are not generous enough, that would start us down the right would, path. That would be a good change. Least. Yeah. 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 Amy, this brings us to the end 
of season three of Bible Worm. And first we should say to our audience that we will, we're taking a little bit of a break until the narrative lectionary begins again. Narrative lectionary begins in September. And so Bible Worm will start, I think it's, I can't remember exactly when the first uh, episode will be published for season four, but it'll be somewhere last week of August, first mm-hmm. week of September, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. So we hope you'll come back and join us next season. We'll be in season, season four will be the narrative lectionary cycle where Matthew is the gospel of focus. So I'm looking forward to that. This feels like a moment though. Like we're taking a little time off. I'm not going to see you every every week. We're yeah. not going to be reading the Bible together or with the Bible Worm audience. Do you have any thoughts about just like, how do you bring a season of how text reading to a close? How do you bring a season of study to a close? Gosh, even as I was saying that, I thought of it another way. This will surprise you not one bit, but there are many Jewish rituals <laughs> and, <laughs> and blessings and prayers for how we bring a season of study to a, a close. And so I'll offer you two today that are um, that won't take too long. Um, so one of them is, it's actually usually when you finish reading a book of Torah, you say, Chazak, Chazak, Benit Chazak, from strength to strength, may we be strengthened. Mm. So may we be strengthened in our study and from our study. The other tradition that I really love is when we finish the cycle, there's there's a holiday in the fall called Simchas Torah when we finish reading the end of the book of Deuteronomy and we celebrate the Torah and we like dance with it and we unscroll the yeah. whole thing and we do like it's really a kind of raucous thing, raucous night with the Torah. And we just as soon as we finish chanting the last verses of Torah, we read the first verses of Genesis. Oh, yeah. So that we are never outside a cycle of Torah. We're never outside the Torah. We're always somewhere inside the Torah. And so it's a little weird to try to like, you know, like, well, the, you know, we're reading the book of John here. It's a little, di- <laughs> <laughs> little, it's a little different. But I thought maybe I would read us just the very beginning of next year's narrative lectionary so that we will not be outside the cycle of yeah, Torah I love that. over the summer. So next year, we are starting in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 5, and also in grand Jewish tradition. I'll read enough verses so we don't end somewhere really scary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, beautiful. Adonai saw how great was human wickedness on earth, how every plan devised by the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And Adonai regretted having made humankind on earth. With a sorrowful heart, Adonai said, I will blot out from the earth humankind whom I created, humans together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. But Noah found favor with Adonai. Noah is our hope. Noah is our, our hope. Only I'm glad one. you kept reading because I was I feeling despondent. <laughs> <laughs> we, can't just, we can't end till we get to Noah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we're going to pick up. End of the summer, beginning of the fall. That's so interesting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I love this, may we be strengthened in our study and from our study. Like, that captures so much in that just one little phrase about what I think Bible study is about. Like, the study itself is really important. And then what grows out of the study is really important. And the two can't be separated from each other. So, I love that. Yeah. I love that, Amy. Yeah, it is a real blessing to study with you every week, Bobby. Even though we have some weird Likewise. texts in there sometimes. <laughs> we, do, we do have some weird texts, but yeah, good, thanks. Good. So well, thanks we have, I appreciate. I was going to say to everyone for um, for listening to us. Think. I feel like that's what we do. They we're we're just thinking. We're thinking together. Yeah. So that, that's exactly the way I think about it, is people who are listening to this podcast are actually thinking along with us. Yeah. So it's not exactly that they're listening to us think. I like to think it's a fully participatory process, yeah. although we don't ever get to really hear too much. Although the Bible Worm Collaborative, we hear some things about what yeah. people are thinking. Um, but I like to think of it as the, the Bible Worm community all wrestling with the text together. Yeah. It makes me happy. I love it. All right, Amy. Well, thanks for another wonderful season of reading text together. I will see you in a couple of months. I'll see you then. Take care, y'all. Bye.
for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Today's episode brings our summer series to a close. We have so enjoyed putting together these special episodes on economic justice in the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. We will be on hiatus until the fall lectionary cycle starts up again in September. Wishing you rest and rejuvenation in the weeks ahead, and we look forward to learning together again next year. Until then, keep on moving.